You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello. And welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. What you're about to hear is part two of a two-part interview with Paul Cruikshank and Tim Lister of CNN. Paul is CNN's terrorism analyst, an investigative reporter specializing in al-Qaeda, ISIS, and jihadist terrorist groups. He previously worked as an investigative journalist in London, reporting on al-Qaeda and its European affiliates, and was part of the CNN reporting team that covered the London July 7, 2005 attacks. Tim covered international news for over 25 years as a producer and reporter for the BBC and CNN. He has lived and worked in the Middle East and has also worked in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He is now a contributor and producer for Turner Broadcasting, where he writes for CNN.com on international topics, including security issues, terrorism, and Europe. Part one of this interview, in which Tim, Paul, and myself discuss Tim and Paul's new book, Agent Storm, My Life in Al-Qaeda and the CIA, which they co-wrote with Morton Storm, is also available on the Spy Museum website. This is... Fast, I could talk about history, even recent history, for days. Uh, but now, since I have you here, I want to try to mine your expertise to talk a little bit more about current events. Uh, particularly, uh, two major things, uh, both of your expertises. Um, ISIS, or IS, or ISIL, or whatever they want to be called today. Um, the Islamic State. Uh, they, they almost make al-Qaeda seem quaint by comparison, almost moderate by comparison. Uh, where did these guys come from? They came from uh, you know, a group called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's the very same group that the United States was fighting in Iraq during the Iraqi insurgency. There's been a, con- a continuance of, of leadership between the two groups. Uh, so uh, you know, they've been around for you know, quite some time. Abu Musab al-Zakawi founded this group that was originally called Tawid al-Jihad in Afghanistan 
in the late 90s. And even back then, it was a rival group to Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden and Zarqawi didn't see eye to eye on everything. They had sort of different strategies. Uh, Al-Qaeda, believe it or not, is much more pragmatic uh, jihadist group willing to work with a range of different actors and kind of wants to kind of build an, an Islamic state eventually for a kind of broader church of the Muslim spectrum of beliefs. But ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Iraq extremely puritanical, only willing to work with people who, who think exactly the same way as they do. And so there's a, a kind of a bit of an ideological difference uh, when it comes to Al-Qaeda and, and uh, ISIS, and there has been since the, the late 90s. Yeah, one really interesting thing about ISIS is that when the US finally pulled out of Iraq, uh, ISIS or its previous incarnation were really on the ropes. I mean, they were down to a few cells and they'd been punished really bad by U.S. intelligence special forces working with the Iraqis. The U.S. then pulls out because it can't agree a status of forces agreement with the, with the Iraqi government. And that allows um, the Iraqi prime minister to adopt a much more sectarian posture in the way he runs Iraq, which then alienates the Sunnis, which then gives space to ISIS because they need acquiescence or they need a host, if you like, on which to grow. And, and Baghdadi, uh, the leader, current leader of ISIS, very cunningly set out um, a strategy over several years. They have not emerged overnight. They've been going this way for four years. Uh, they made a lot of money through bank raids. They intimidated and killed Iraqi uh, army officers and policemen, so they were already going at the security forces, undermining them. Uh, and they were latching on to various Sunni uh, tribal communities in, in western Iraq. So it's been a strategy that's, that's worked incredibly well for them uh, up until this year. And then they benefited, of course, from having Syria as a rear base, taking advantage of the chaos there. And now they can operate across borders. So that's the danger. And one thing they've done exceptionally well is use technology, use social media, um, you know, on Twitter, on, on all these different platforms that we really haven't seen to this level, at least before. Um, is this something that intelligence agencies want to promote as far? I mean, this is a great source of intelligence is basically telling us where you're at and what you're doing. Uh, there, there was a couple months ago, I, um, a, a, a jihadist video of, of uh, several different jihadists out in the open. Uh, and a couple of days later, there were reports that they were all dead uh, because the CIA had looked at the video and said, I know where those mountains are. Um, is this something that you know is going to come back to bite ISIS in the end because all this free intelligence handed over to the West. I think it's a net plus for ISIS. The social media is, is where they do a lot of their recruiting. I mean, you have people actually reaching back to their Twitter followers, their friends back in back in Europe or the United States, come and join us over here. And they can put all their videos there. I mean, that's where uh, all the propaganda is right now. It's, it's on Twitter. It's really quite extraordinary. It's, it's, you know, originally some of the videos are on these password protected sites, but very quickly they move from there uh, onto Twitter and out to a much bigger audience. So it's been a big recruitment and propaganda tool for ISIS, but of course also useful for, for Western intelligence services. And, uh, you know, just recently uh, there have been several arrests made in, in Europe where um, the people announced on Twitter they were coming back. European uh, officials and, and, and police were waiting for them at the airport. One of the things I think is also interesting about ISIS is they're essentially an army at this point. I mean, they've got tanks, they've got Humvees, all, all the things we left for Iraq. Um, and, and one of the things that the United States, at least, and certainly the British and the Australians and anyone who's involved in Vietnam, one of the things we've been arguing since then 
uh, when we're fighting insurgencies or other things, is that we've got the greatest militaries in the world, just get the enemy out in the open, and we'll take care of business. And so you have these hit-and-run tactics and the guerrilla tactics. Well, ISIS seems to be adopting relatively straightforward military tactics. We'll take our tanks, we'll take our... Is this going to come back to bite them, trying to fight the West head-to-head in an old-fashioned military sense? Yeah, I think it is. And there's been some interesting uh, articles by people who know a lot about um, military tactics and strategy in in the recent past to, to the effect that ISIS will struggle when it has to defend. When it's on the attack, it uses agility. It uses Iraq's extremely good road network. It uses um, the installation of fear in the enemy, which should not be neglected or uh, understated. Uh, that's what you had in Mosul, where a vastly superior force of Iraqi troops just ran. They took their uniforms off and they ran because of the reputation of the people who were thundering down the highway in about uh, 100 pickups. So you have uh, a whole bunch of things that are, that are going for ISIS when they're on the attack. When they have to defend, they're more static, they're more vulnerable, they're certainly more vulnerable to airstrikes. And this is what's happened around the Mosul Dam, and it's happened elsewhere. Places where they defend, it's much easier to get them. Having said that, they're extremely adaptable as an organization. So even when they've been on the defensive, they've been very clever about booby-trapping things, about uh, cutting off routes of access, such as blowing up bridges and so forth. They are an adaptive, resilient organization that's not going to get defeated in six months. And there's concern if you're, if it's only a strategy of airstrikes that they could sort of melt into the local uh, population, uh, increasingly operate less as a military force but more as a guerrilla uh, force. And, and, and how are the United States and, and others who are going to get involved in airstrikes going to tell who's ISIS and not ISIS? And what if you hit the wrong uh, people? That's not going to help the battle for hearts and minds. So ultimately here, you've got to sp- split, up, split off some of the, the, the tribal allies of the group and some of the Sunnis that are supporting them, uh, because otherwise they're going to still be in business in, in, in some way, shape or other for, for a long time. I think the other critical thing is to split them off uh, from Syria and Iraq. And if you can do that by basically disrupting their lines of communication between Raqqa province, for example, which is Syria, and Nineveh and Mosul and so forth in Iraq, which is not actually terribly difficult because there aren't many roads leading between the two. If you can stop them doing that, using one and the other, depending on circumstances, that would be a big help as well. Well, some Western military officials or even government officials have been somewhat dismissive of ISIS, saying, well, they can take territory, but governing it's a whole other ballgame. They've actually been pretty good at that as well. They're you know, building schools and, and building infrastructure. Is that something that should be alarming to the West? Well, what they've done in, in many cases is actually keep the present administration in place. And, and whether by you know, paying their salaries or, or terrorizing them, a lot of the people who were running these cities before, places like Mosul and Raqqa, still got their jobs and are still kind of there and still running things. ISIS itself... Uh, probably not so good as a group in, in kind of running a whole administration. There are maximum, you know, 15,000, maybe 20,000 ISIS uh, fully-fledged fighters. That's that's not even enough to kind of run a town like uh, Mosul, let alone the rest of the territory they have under operation. So they kind of rule through fear. Uh, they keep the present administrations in place. And it's, it's when people are kind of more angry about this group than they're afraid uh, that you're going to see a real uh, backlash against them like we saw 
uh, back in Anbar province in 2006, 2007. The question is, you know, how long till we get to that point? Could be quite a long time indeed. And one of their tactics has been to empty out towns where they're not uh, sure of the loyalty or obedience of the people. So uh, hostile tribes or groups that they don't trust, that they don't think that they can suborn, have basically been evicted from places. I think a lot of Western intelligence people are going to look back at Algeria at this point because you had the GIA in Algeria, which is a terrorist group of similar size, controlling large chunks of territory. Ultimately, the Algerians decided that they wouldn't um, face them down directly. They wouldn't send the army in, which would make mistakes and alienate the local population. So they choked off these areas. They made them economically unsustainable. And I think there may be a role for that as they begin to develop a strategy to fight ISIS. And in Algeria, uh, the GIA ended up alienating the local population, they, they, the, the, the massacres of civilians and so on and so forth, and the population turned against them big time, and they were comprehensively uh, defeated uh, in Algeria. And I think the lesson we've learned, the more we've studied terrorism across the world, is that they have to have safe havens. They have to have places where there's a power vacuum, you know, where state authority runs out, whether it's northern Mali, southern Libya, Somalia, parts of Yemen. That is the only way these groups can thrive. If you have a state that begins to get organized and begins to provide services, and if you deny space to groups like these, it becomes much, much more difficult for them to function. But that's why it's such a worrying moment right now, because if you look across uh, West Africa, North Africa, uh, the Arab world, the, you know, places like Yemen, a lot of places are kind of failing states. I mean, there's been a security vacuum uh, since the Arab Spring. Um, and these groups can really flourish in a lot of these areas, whether it's in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt or the east of Libya, um, parts of Algeria, Tunisia, the Sahara. Look at what's going on in, in Nigeria. Big unreported story, the Boko Haram, the uh, terrorist uh, group that has taken control of a major part of the northeast of that country, just like ISIS did uh, back in June in, in Mosul. Uh, so a lot of concern about this sort of arc of instability across the region. And the grim takeaway for those who like Lonely Planet is that from Mauritania on the Atlantic coast all the way through to the Himalayas, if you like the Hindu Kush, the Pakistan-Afghan border, there is a massive no-go zone for Westerners now, places that are simply not safe to go. It's a huge part of the world. After all, the Paris-Dakar rally used to be a big event. It doesn't exist anymore. People don't go to Timbuktu like they used to because that part of Mali is incredibly dangerous. It's repeated time and time again, even Egypt now is a very difficult place to go to and be safe. There are parts of Egypt which are very unsafe because of the Islamist threat. So you have a big part of the world that's simply off limits. Well, I ISIS has been a pretty extraordinary unifier when it comes to uh, making enemies and enemies that normally would not be working together. When you have uh, Israel as your enemy, but also Iran, Syria, the United States, when Turkey is telling the Kurds, go ahead and and, and fight these guys, we got your back. That's an extraordinary situation. The, the strange bedfellows. The only analogy I can possibly, I have to go back to maybe Hitler to think about the same idea of, of very different groups, very different mentalities and ideologies coming together to fight a common threat. I mean, the Arab League today said, the 22 countries of the Arab League, I believe, I think I got the right number, said, you know, we're uniting against ISIS. So you have Israel and the Arab League, in concert, Hezbollah and in the United States, and we're thinking about potentially being on the side of Assad and Syria and Iran. Uh, for those that try to keep track of 
the factions in the Middle East. This, this is frustrating to try to follow along. A, a flowchart would be near impossible to make at this point. I mean, as experts, how do you how do you keep track of this? Well, it's really really quite extraordinary. I mean, on, on the one hand, you have a country like Saudi Arabia, which is alarmed uh, by the growth of ISIS. They're worried about Saudis coming back uh, into the kingdom, having been trained and launching you know terror attacks back in Saudi Arabia. On the other hand. Uh, the Iranians, their big regional rivals, also now very concerned about the, the growth of ISIS, a, a group which is radically anti-Shia uh, and is extremely destabilizing uh, in Iraq. So you have uh, these two huge rivals uh, now you know, have some common interest uh, in uh, going after uh, ISIS uh, in, in the region. Obviously, that, all of that is going to help uh, in, this, um, in, this, in this campaign, this struggle, uh, to shrink the space where this uh, terrorist uh, group is able to uh, operate. Uh, but it's, it's still got this strong presence uh, in Syria. And the problem is that the only power really with boots on the ground in Syria that could confront this group is the Assad regime. And this is exactly uh, what Assad wanted. He wanted to maneuver things into this situation where it was a choice of Western powers, us or them. And that's really the binary choice fundamentally that Western powers now face. Because he crushed all the moderate opposition and only left the Well, he crushed far. it, but no one else was helping it. And you have to remember that the more radical Islamist groups in Syria have had some very wealthy benefactors from elsewhere in the Middle East. And there's some crocodile tears being shed at the moment. And this is a marriage of convenience that will last just so long as is required to degrade ISIS. And then we'll go back to business as usual. And the same old rivalries will be uh, back in... Uh, in the, back to the fore. So I, I don't I expect the Saudis and Iran to make up just because of ISIS, right. nor do I expect the Qataris, who have been extremely influential in this area, to uh, suddenly find they're on the same page as, as the Saudis. But what is really interesting, having just come back from a long stint in Jerusalem, is that the Israelis and the Egyptians and the Saudis are very much thinking along the same lines now in terms of the future landscape of the region. They don't so much acknowledge it openly, right. But there's a, an implicit understanding there that they have the same sort of interests now in the Middle East, which is pretty extraordinary. Well, it's like, it's like Iran and the United States not acknowledging that, we're, you know, it's, it's, no one, it's in no one's best interest to say that out loud, uh, but it's in everyone's best interest to work together against this threat. Um, Tim, I wanted to ask you, you almost didn't make it back for this event tonight because you were in East Ukraine. Um, let me say Eastern Ukraine. I'm not going to call it its own country quite yet. Um, there, there is a tentative ceasefire, uh, not very, very good potentially, because there are reports that the ceasefire has been breached already. Um, from your experience there, and you said you'd been there what, four times this year. This year, um, what is the likelihood that this is going to stay peaceful for very long? It's extraordinarily difficult because you don't have uh, effective chains of command on either side. Uh, the Ukrainian government is about to get its fourth defense minister this year. There are volunteer battalions who don't like Poroshenko at all, who think he's weak, who think they should be going after these separatist groups much more vigorously. On the other side, there are different brigades that think very differently. Some have closer contacts with Russia than others. So you've also got front lines that are very fluid, that come and go. We were driving last week in a part of eastern Ukraine and found, suddenly found ourselves in, in rebel territory without knowing it. 
previous day, this particular town had been in the government's hands. There was nothing out there to suggest that it changed hands. So you've got this ebb and flow, and it's a hugely difficult job for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who's now supposed to going to have the observers in there to separate these sides and to monitor the Russian border. Hugely difficult job for them. I drove up the Russian border for some 200 kilometers on the worst roads in Europe. This is not an easy area to monitor. Uh, the, the border itself is not marked. There's vast tracts of open farmland uh, where there are little lanes that you can easily bring stuff in and out. So it's going to be a very, very difficult job. Yeah, I, I spent a year in the Balkans myself and just knowing who is on what side or what ideology or what religion, or in this case, who's Russian. They're all Slavic in some sense. Uh, they all speak a language that, you know, Ukrainian is very similar to Russian, and many in Eastern Ukraine speak Russian anyway because they're much more ethnically tied to Russia. Um, since you've been on the ground, I mean, the reports here we get in the United States, back and forth, the Russians denying involvement, the Ukrainian government saying there's Russian aid to the, the, the rebels or to the... Uh, whatever you'd like to call those who are fighting against the, the government uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, on the ground, what, what, what do you gather uh, as far as Russian involvement in this? Having been there several times, it's remarkable how much more capable the rebels have become in just two or three short months. Now, either a lot of them have gone somewhere and been trained very well, or they're getting help from somewhere. Uh, I was at a site on Saturday, uh, just two days ago, in, uh, near Mariupol, where they'd knocked out three Ukrainian tanks with uh, a barrage of incredibly accurate mortar. Uh, there were about 15 upwards craters in the space of 100 meters. They'd pinpointed these tanks and hit them. Uh, the rebels would not have been capable of doing that just uh, two short months ago. And this is an area that's only 20 to 30 kilometers from the Russian border. So one can draw one's own conclusions. Also, you don't buy T-72 tanks, SS-21 uh, surface-to-surface missiles, which we saw, the wreckage thereof uh, in the fields. You don't buy them at flea markets. Where are they coming from? These T-72 tanks are not even Ukrainian issue, so you can tell they're coming from somewhere else. Right. Uh, so I think the, the evidence is there. It's not as conclusive as perhaps NATO and the West would like, but it's very easy to send special forces across the border in some other nameless uniform across a border that's not monitored, uh, who can work with vehicles that are not marked, tanks that are not seeable. After all, there's no sign of the Ukrainian state in these places. Uh, they can operate pretty much with impunity, and that was the tragedy of the Malaysian Airlines flight that came down, because I think if the international aviation community had realized that, it, that you had SA-11s trawling around in eastern Ukraine looking for Ukrainian transport planes to hit out of the sky, they might have decided to reroute international aviation before that point. Sadly, it was too late. What, what, is, your, what, what, what is your idea about um, the way NATO has responded to this, or not responded to this, or potential response in the future? Is, is there a so-called red line? For, forget the President of the United States. Does NATO have a so-called red line that you think, uh, if, if Russia crosses, there will be some kind of response. NATO will only uh, continue to have relevance and will only continue to exist if it can defend its members. If uh, the Russians decide the next stage is to create some sort of Russian separatist movement in the Baltic republics, NATO will have to step up. If it doesn't, it might as well disband because these are members of NATO and the NATO treaty says an attack on one member is an attack on all. So that is the acid test for NATO. 
There's not much they can do about Ukraine. Uh, after all, Ukraine's not a member. Its military is in a terrible state. It's also supplied almost exclusively with former Soviet hardware. So there's nothing that you can come out of NATO stocks and easily be integrated with what the Ukrainian armed forces have got. There is some doubt about whether NATO members are beginning to supply lethal aid to the Ukrainians. There's certainly intelligence and technical assistance going, because for the first time last week I heard drones in the sky over eastern Ukraine. They're coming from somewhere. Right. Uh, so th there's much more in the way of um, assistance going on, but you're dealing with a government that's not particularly effective. You're dealing with a huge amount of territory. You're dealing with a pretty determined opposition in some places, and you're dealing with a very fractured military structure, the National Guard, these volunteer battalions, the Ukrainian regular army. I was in Kramatorsk back in April when the elite 25th uh, division, a Ukrainian division, was surrounded by villagers and humiliated. They had to take all the, uh, their weapons and give them away, and they were allowed finally by these villagers to leave in their tanks uh, with all their weapons and ammunition gone. So the Ukrainian army is, has, has struggled to deal with this. So, so if Russian tanks roll on Kiev, there's really not much that the West will do about it? Well, not militarily. No, but I think that they would then seek to cripple the Russian economy um, in ways that are unimaginable uh, right now, because that would be such a huge step. And I don't think Putin wants to or needs to take that step. He uses Eastern Ukraine, this is according to Western intelligence, this is not me speaking, but he uses Eastern Ukraine as a warning, as a sort of break on Kiev in terms of its aspirations to be part of Western Europe, to become a member of NATO. Those aspirations are still there. The irony is that he's actually forced the Ukrainians into the arms of the Europeans much more quickly in doing this. So you've got a very messy situation where Putin's goals are perhaps not being uh, reached, but at the same time the Ukrainians are absolutely unable to get regain control of their sovereign territory. So is Crimea enough for Putin? I mean, there's, of course people on the, on the right wing here in the United States and the West saying, you know, he's the next Hitler, he wants to take over all of Europe. I don't see that. Is, is Crimea enough? I mean, is he, is, is he satisfied with his territory? The suggestions are that he has ambitions elsewhere, that there are Russian-speaking minorities in Kazakhstan, in Moldova, uh, elsewhere. You've already seen it in Georgia, in Abkhazia, for example, where he's wanted to flex... Russia's muscle, and he's talked about Novorossiya, this 19th century phenomenon where Russia struck out to the south and became a much larger country. So uh, he even has said about how tragic it was the Soviet Union in the end um, was demolished. He thinks that's very bad. So clearly he has an entirely different mindset from one that thinks, okay, well, Crimea is... Russian, and therefore we'll have it back, thank you very much. Crimea, after all, was only given to Ukraine back in the 1950s, and is largely Russian, to be honest. And they, they, I was in Crimea for that whole saga and the referendum. They didn't really need to fix it. There was plenty of people in Crimea who wanted to go back to being part of Russia. Uh, I think one of the dangers for, for Putin, though, is taking on too much when the Russian economy is in a pretty bad state, when the public finance is not particularly strong, and therefore... You can easily find that the middle class, which has been very pro-Putin, could turn against him if, um, if the punishment was sufficient, if, if Russian banks couldn't work overseas, if people couldn't send their kids to English boarding schools or have you know, nice houses in Marbella, which a lot of the, the better-off Russians do. So uh, 
it's it, it's not over. There's all sorts of uh, different machinations to follow. But I, I feel sorry for the Ukrainian people because I think they're in for a, an extremely tough winter uh, in a country where the winter is very tough. And uh, they, they've got a long way to go before um, they get any sort of uh, stability and security back. I'll ask you one, one last question and then we can wrap up. But I, I do want to ask you about the potential of Russia rebuilding goodwill with the West. Now, I think Putin's a little too far gone for that. Um, Maybe not, but uh, let me ask you the question without answering it. Um, what, what is the chance that at some time in the future there will be a rapprochement between uh, the Ru- Russians and the West? Uh, that's been really any gains in the 1990s and the early 2000s are, are gone uh, because of Crimea and in Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, is there a potential for uh, a reengagement between you know, the largest country in the world and everybody else? Um, if I can answer the question, who comes after Putin? And nobody really knows, because there is no successor groomed. I think Medvedev was probably more moderate, and he would have tried to keep at least a channel open to the West. He doesn't have Putin's uh, almost messianic desire at times to recreate the old Russia. So it just depends entirely which way politics goes who Putin selects because he will select somebody and whether that person puts the Russia's economy and its links with the outside world and its ability to um, live in the outside world with the, all the financial and banking and, and trade and technology links that are essential in the current uh, the current world or whether they'll say you know we can be a Eurasian landmass that doesn't need the West so that'll be the critical part and we're so far away from that couldn't begin to venture a guess. I, I lied. I have one last question. You actually inspired a last question in me. Um, you talk. You use the word messianic, and I, and I want to really ask about Putin's religion. Is is fundamentalist Christianity a, a component in this, or is it like Stalin used to do, is come up with the ideology to uh, provide cover for the decision that was already made? I mean, is is this overt Christianity by Putin a a mask for a realpolitik foreign policy, or it, does he have true, truly that strong beliefs as it comes out? I just don't know about that, but uh, but he has used the Russian Orthodox Church um, as part of this Russian revanchism, if you like, this sort of relaunch of nas- Russian nationalism. Uh, so it's certainly a factor, whether it comes from some sort of heartfelt feelings or whether it happens to be yet another tool in the army that he can use, I couldn't tell you. But he's very much um, resurrected this sort of uh, Russian historical role, which is why Ukraine matters, because the Russians are not good at having allies. They like vassals or they like enemies. They're not very... Uh, happy with always going way back in history the idea of encirclement's always terrified them and they see that in the baltics they might see it in the ukraine putin's not alone in that but it's a, a sort of russian nationalism that um is very much to the fore at the moment and the russian orthodox church is part of that well tim paul thank you for joining us uh paul crookshank and tim lister are co-authors with morton storm of the book agent storm my life and al-qaeda in the cia uh, is on bookstores now in the united states uh and you know, in a couple of years, look out for the movie. Uh, we hope. Yeah, the movie version of this book. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.